Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Patrick Moore. He is the co-founder of Greenpeace, and he has written the books Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, The Making of a Sensible Environmentalist, and Trees are the Answer. He is the co-founder of Green Spirit Strategies LTD out of Canada, and he is here to talk with me and us about Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout. You should read this book because it may be that, like me, you're going to learn that a lot of the terms that are being used, a lot of the ideologies that are being adapted are going to be clarified and distilled. I consider myself an environmental advocate. I had a lot of humbling and learning to do in this book. Not that I agreed with every single thing that was said, but for the most part, it was a great learning experience. And I'm honored today to have the privilege to talk with Patrick. And I appreciate the work that he's done for over 30 years to help the environment, to assist whales and seals and so many animals that are abused and life itself here. Ladies and gentlemen, give a warm welcome to Patrick Moore. Thank you for being here. Hello, Kim. It's great to be with you. I think the first thing that I noticed that was a theme throughout Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout is that you have been an activist on the ground, dealing with the whaling ships, dealing with the seals that have been clubbed. You have experience in forestry, and so does your family, and that you don't come out of nowhere when you say what you say. You have a clear, definitive standing in understanding the confusion that many of us have with regard to the environment, whether it's climate, chemicals, or foods, or other things. And I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you to do for us is to explain to us why renewable energy does not mean clean energy. Well, yes, in, in, in my little chapter on sustainability and what the definitions are around words, I have a section called renewable, clean, sustainable, and green. And people use those words as if they're interchangeable when in fact it's very important to parse them because they all have distinct meanings. And once you understand that, it gives you a better insight into being able to do some critical thinking and reading and understanding about energy issues in general. And for example, renewable is fairly clear what it means. It means that it is replenishes itself in a fairly short cycle. Uh, the sun is there every day for us. It doesn't wear out. Uh, it doesn't go away except at night and when it's cloudy, which is why solar panels are not all they're cracked up to be. But renewable simply means that. But renewable doesn't necessarily mean sustainable or clean. And for example, if you burn wood without any pollution control, it's dirty. It produces a huge amount of smoke and it's really bad to have everybody burning wood fires in a valley where you have an inversion and everybody's breathing in wood, wood smoke. That's bad for you. It's unhealthy, just like coal smoke and fossil fuel smoke. It's more or less the same thing. Uh, and as far as sustainable goes, if you cut the forest faster than it grows, that's not sustainable. It's the same with the, the, the bison, the buffalo of the Great Plains, they're renewables, they're a species that's renewable, but they were overhunted and nearly exterminated. 
codfish off the Atlantic coast, renewable, but not sustainable at the rate they were harvested. So it's really important to make that distinction. So if you burn wood, which is renewable, you have to have good pollution control in order to make it clean, and you have to make sure that the forest is growing back as fast or faster than you're using the wood for energy in order for it to be sustainable. On the other hand, there are quite a few non-renewable resources that are sustainable and clean. And nuclear energy is the classic case of that, uh, which there's enough uranium and thorium in the Earth's crust to last for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, long after the fossil fuels are gone, there will be nuclear fuel. And when a nuclear plant is operating properly, it is clean, emitting no air pollution or greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Uh, steel uh, is made from iron. Iron is you know, theoretically non-renewable. It doesn't replenish itself. But there's so much of it in the Earth's crust that we couldn't use it all up if we tried. There's enough for millions of years. So iron is extremely sustainable. Now, as to whether it's clean or not, has to do with the manufacturing process by which it's made. Because you use uh, coal, for example, to put the carbon into steel, and that process can be dirty if there's not proper pollution control. The real issue with iron and steel is the energy that's needed to convert iron ore into steel that we would make a ship with, or a stainless steel refrigerator. Uh, that energy also has to be sustainable. But the iron ore itself is not renewable, yet extremely sustainable. And then comes the word green, which is the least useful of all of those four terms, renewable, clean, sustainable, and green. Because green is basically just a marketing term as it is used today. It doesn't have any technical definition. For example, when people talk about green jobs, like what are you actually talking about? I think with the name green and the marketing term, my understanding, just from hearing it, not from inside knowledge per se, is that when something is green, it's considered and assumed to be sustainable and, quote, good. What about a green car, a green automobile? You know, Toyota cloaks itself in green because of its hybrid technology, which is an improvement. So it seems as though as long as you're making some kind of improvement, even though what you're doing is still not particularly sustainable, because how sustainable is an automobile? You know, and how sustainable is it that we have millions, hundreds of millions of them? I, it, they require a lot of mining, they require a lot of energy to produce, they use a lot of energy. So I accept the word green as being somewhat useful but it's important that people understand it doesn't have any metric. When you Renewable, say it doesn't have metric, tell me what you mean. You can't measure green. Okay. okay. You can measure sustainable in centuries. You can measure clean in pollution, whether there is or is not pollution. And renewable is self-explanatory uh, in that it replenishes itself without our, without our involvement. But green is uh, mostly a value judgment. So is pollution, in fact. I mean, a lot of people think pollution is a scientific term, when in fact it is a value judgment, meaning that something is somewhere where we don't want it to be. Uh, because chlorine, for example, would be pollution if it was in the air that I'm breathing, 
But when it's in a swimming pool preventing me from getting a disease, it's not pollution. So uh, pollution isn't about the substance so much as it is about the dose, the, the quantity of whatever it is, and more particularly where it is. Radioactivity in the sea off Japan is pollution, but radioactivity inside a nuclear reactor is not pollution. It's a value judgment. I understand the distinctions that you're making. It's about the application. It's about dosage. It's about what it is and how it's used. Can we talk for a second here about clean coal? The problem with clean coal is it is an advertising campaign and not much more. Although the coal industry, especially if they can attract large federal government grants, is happy to see uh, multi-million, even multi-billion dollar projects to demonstrate clean coal because that's a good cover for the fact that none of the coal plants are actually clean. What do they mean when they say it, aside from it being obviously a marketing approach, but how can they say it's clean coal? What do they mean? When they say clean coal, what they mean is all the exhaust gases are going to be buried in the ground. Uh, and, and that's called carbon capture and sequestration or carbon capture and storage, CSS, CCS that is, carbon capture and storage. And the theory is that you take the exhaust gas from the coal plant and basically pump it into the ground into uh, caverns and, and, and layers underground. It's a great theory, except that there are over 600 coal plants in the United States, and they are not all in places where there are big holes in the ground where they can pump all their gas, besides which this will be extremely expensive to do, and will use a large portion of the plant's electricity and make it much more expensive to produce electricity with coal but the real kicker is that the insurance industry wants nothing to do with this because when you pump carbon dioxide into a big hole in the ground, it's under pressure and it may eventually leak and come back out again. And if it comes back out in a place where people are living, if there's any kind of depression in the geography, it will pool in that depression because carbon dioxide is heavier than air and it will suffocate everybody uh, and everything, uh, in including the animals. So uh, it is not a proven uh, technology. It is possible to show in one instance that, like, for example, there is a coal plant in Wyoming that is sending its exhaust gas through a large pipe into Saskatchewan in Canada, and they're pumping that exhaust gas into the ground in order to increase the recovery of heavy oil. In other words, they're pressurizing the oil field down there with this exhaust gas from a coal plant and it's kind of ironic because they are, they are capturing carbon from the coal plant's exhaust in order to get more carbon out of the ground in the form of heavy oil. So it's rather self-defeating from any kind of climate policy point of view. But this example is always pointed to as an example of how there really can be clean coal. It isn't going to happen. Uh, this is one of the few predictions I was made because, as you know, I'm, I'm not big on predictions because I don't think we do actually have a crystal ball to predict the future. But one thing I would predict is that clean coal won't come true. It's a fairy tale promoted by the coal industry in order to make us think that coal is clean, when in fact it is the most harmful thing we do to the environment and to our health. Uh, although that doesn't mean I'd say, okay, shut all the coal plants down, because that's 50% of U.S. electricity. We have to transition into cleaner technologies 
and that will take time. I did a piece last year on wind and was shocked to find out that wind energy is way more expensive and not consistent in terms of delivering the energy and that it's way more complex in terms of being able to rely on it than it's made to be. Do you agree with that? Yeah, the big fantasy about wind and solar is that it is somehow reliable and can replace large, continuous power like coal and nuclear and hydroelectric. It simply cannot, because we don't have the storage ability, except in very unique cases. Uh, For example, uh, one of my favorite examples is, is in my book, is that the Swiss buy surplus French nuclear energy at night very cheap. They get it a lot cheaper than you could get wind energy because the, the French have no use for it at night because the, the load is so low, yet they have to keep the reactors running. And so the Swiss buy this energy for probably tenths of a cent per kilowatt hour and pump water up into hydroelectric dams in the Alps. And then the next morning, they run that water through turbines and sell the electricity to the Italians at a profit. So there is an example. That's called pump storage. And there is an example where you can actually store quite large amounts of energy that is taken taken from an electricity plant and put it into uh, a hydro dam high in the, up in the mountains and and run it through turbines in the morning. But this is these are limited applications. You have to have a big source of water, or else you have to have two lakes, one above the other, and then in the day you run the water into the bottom lake, and at night you pump the water back up with surplus electricity into the top lake. That works, but you can imagine it's only going to be applicable under certain circumstances. The real problem, though, is if you use wind energy to pump the water up, now your electricity is not only two or three times as expensive as regular energy, but it's five or six times as expensive because you have had to do all this pumping as well as all of the wind. And then one night there's no wind, and so you don't get any water up into the dam the next morning, and then you don't have any electricity. So this is, you know, wind and solar both have these two fundamental weaknesses. Intermittency, meaning it isn't available on demand, and on demand is a fundamentally important factor with any kind of energy source. Uh, Your car, for example, has a tank of gas in it. That tank of gas sits there for a month, and then it's available, boom, when you want it, on demand. And any day, you just have to go fill it up. If you don't remember to do that, well, you haven't got a very sustainable situation. But solar is the same. Only solar costs six to ten times as much as regular energy to begin with, and it isn't available even as much as wind is. In a good wind area, you will get 30% what's called capacity factor, which means that if you have a 1,000 megawatt of wind, you get 300 megawatts out of that wind farm. And part of the time, there'll be no wind when there isn't any energy coming from it. And the question is, what do you do then? Well, you have to build a gas plant, which is reliable and can be started up when the wind stops. So why not just build a gas plant, one might ask, because why would you build this giant wind farm that costs a fortune and the electricity from which costs two or three times as much as the electricity from a gas plant? Why not just build a gas plant? Well, there comes the climate argument saying, well, when the wind is blowing, you don't have to run the gas plant, and that saves on greenhouse gas emissions, which is true if you think it's worth it. And, you know, as, as you know, in my book, I come down to the last chapter, Climate of Fear, 
in which I question whether or not we know that it's worth it to do that. And if you don't really know it's worth it to do that, you should start thinking a little bit more about it. And uh, that takes you back to the beginning of the book. From a climate perspective, though, if the public accepts that carbon dioxide is not food for plants and, and nourishment for human beings and animals, but accepts the EPA translation that carbon dioxide is a toxin, then it seems like that trumps all other logic and understanding because then it's all about the greenhouse gases and it's all about carbon dioxide. It's all centered on this seed. That is right, Kim, and that is the nub of the issue, is that we have had created for us an overarching uh, situation where climate change is absolutely paramount. Everything else must fit under that umbrella because we are doomed to uh, fry in hell if we continue to live this carbon-rich life that we have today. And I'm of two minds about it because I believe it is very important for us to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, but not necessarily because of the climate issue, because we're just too dependent on them and they are non-renewable and we're not conserving them like we should be, where there are other technologies that can do the job just as well or better and cleaner than if we use a fossil fuel, that's where we should be going, which is why I'm in favor of electrifying vehicles and in favor of ground source heat pumps in buildings to replace natural gas and in favor of nuclear and hydroelectric energy, which are a reasonable price and reduce fossil fuel consumption. So I'm in favor of all those things, yet at the same time, I do not buy into the idea that carbon dioxide is toxic. That is ridiculous because it is the most important nutrient for all life on earth. I'm looking out the window at all the trees and plants coming out in the springtime here, and the, the reason they are able to do that is because they are eating the carbon dioxide in the air. It is their primary nutrient. Uh, the other nutrients, of course, are water, uh, rainfall, and some smid smidgen of minerals from the soil. But a plant is mainly made up of air and water, and the air part is carbon dioxide. I mean, it's a miracle that uh, these plants can pull CO2 out of the atmosphere when it's only at 390 parts per million. For example, aquatic life, uh, fish living in the ocean, as soon as uh, the uh, oxygen content gets down below about five parts per million, uh, they start to suffer. And so, and, and that's amazing that they can survive on that. I mean, it, it is, uh, sorry, I meant 5% not five parts per million, at 5% level. Uh, so the plants are, 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 in fact, what my research has shown very clearly, that the plants that are living on this earth today would actually prefer to have a carbon dioxide level four or five times higher than it is now. And whereas Al Gore can get away with saying that CO2 has never been higher than it is now in the last 800,000 years, 800,000 years isn't even halfway back to the beginning of the present ice age. But if you look at the longer term of life on Earth, carbon dioxide has actually never been lower than it is now through most of the history of life. And that is a fact. I mean, it's a demonstrated fact. And 
So depending on the timeline you choose for temperature and CO2, you can say the opposite uh, either way. For example, during the Holocene thermal maximum, after the last glaciation ended, so a period between about 4,000 and 9,000 years ago, a 5,000-year period, it was definitely warmer than it is today. And so you can basically say that for the last 5,000 years, we have been generally in a cooling trend. That is a fact. But you can also say during the last 200 years, we've been in a warming trend, which is also a fact because it goes up and down. And, and if you go back 20,000 years, we are way in a warming trend because 20,000 years ago, the Ice Age was still at its height and there were glaciers a mile or more deep all the way through Canada into the United States down into the Dakotas. There were these glaciers covering the whole of Canada nearly and, nearly, and all of Siberia, all of Scandinavia were completely covered in a giant sheet of ice. No one wants that to happen again. So uh, that comes to the point I make that not only do we not know that we are actually responsible for the global warming that has occurred in the last 200 years, but we also should think about whether this might not be a good thing because it would definitely be bad if it got colder in this world. Absolutely. The world, the world is already quite cold. Uh, and, you know, people who live in warm places don't get that, but come to Canada, which is one of the world's largest land masses, along with Russia, which is twice as big as Canada. And Europe. And, and both of those places are freezing cold through much of the year. Uh, when, when Mexico is producing three crops of vegetables and fruits per year with no break in the growing season, uh, here in Canada... There's a six-month period when nothing will grow because it's, the ground is frozen solid. And that is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, so the, the idea, number one, that, that we know that we are the cause of warming, and it's easy to demonstrate that we don't know that we are the cause of warming. All you have to do is ask the question, what caused the ice ages to come on 2.5 million years ago? What caused the various glaciations that have occurred during the Ice Age to come and go uh, six times or so during that period? What caused the warming that started in 1800 after the Little Ice Age came to an end? It wasn't us. So if you can't answer the question, what was it, then how can you be so certain? And this is what really bothers me and why I love Michael Crichton's quote in State of Fear. He said, I'm certain there's too much certainty in the world. It is the certitude, the absolute moral certitude of the environmental movement that drives me the most nuts because they, they can't possibly be that certain, although they say they are. And I tell audiences it's, it's, it's actually a bit of a weakness as a scientist for me to admit that there's something I don't know because you seem like you're smarter if you know what the answer is to climate change, for example. You come on with certitude. Al Gore actually... You'd think he was a scientist or something. He's so certain. Uh, but he isn't actually a scientist. He has no scientific training. He is a politician and a very successful one at that. But he is not a climate scientist. And yet people listen to him as if he is some kind of oracle. After 22 segments on climate, it was so humbling for me to continue to go into all the different aspects and really look from the place of, I don't know, and it was pretty astounding to me to find out that we're entering a cooling cycle right now. 
I did an interview with geologist Don Easterbrook and so many others to find out that people don't even get that information that we're in a cooling period right now. I'm not saying we're in an ice age or that we're a pre-ice age, but we've been in a cooling period around the world. But unless you're tracking it, what's going on, and you just blindly accept what we've been told, then that's what people believe. And I believe that a great portion of the environmental movement and environmentalists and people that love the planet have been hijacked by this. I do want to ask you about nuclear, but I also want to say that it seems to me that whatever energy is going to be consistent with political policy and funding may, in fact, by what you're saying, be unsustainable because it's based on the lie that CO2 is the boogeyman and that global warming is why, quote, the planet is not working and we're the cause. It's all connected in. There's a lot of things in your book that we have to take time with, but I really want you to talk about nuclear waste. You say it's the fuel of the future. I want you to explain fusion from fission and in the context of what's happened at Fukushima, I know that people are listening, very concerned, and you can't blame them. Let's talk about it. Yeah, well, that'll only take about four days. Exactly. I hope you have four days. (laughs) (laughs) We may have part one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. Well, right off the top, uh, say you believe in climate change and you want to reduce fossil fuel emissions, and you're sincere about that. Why would you reject hydroelectric and nuclear power, which are the only two large-scale, baseload or continuous, reliable, reasonably priced alternatives to fossil fuels that we have for electricity production at the present time. Because we're radiologically afraid. Okay, that's for the nuclear, but why, why is the environmental movement opposed to hydroelectric power? Maybe they don't understand it. Well, it's very simple. Explain it to us. You make a lake where there was a river by damming a valley uh, and creating an artificial lake, and then you have what's called a head of water, uh, where the water is now two or three or 400 feet higher than it used to be, and you use that pressure to run a turbine. uh, It's basically a big kind of propeller-like thing that the water goes through it and turns it, and that runs an electric generator. It's very simple. It's clean, it's renewable, but the environmental movement, including my old friends in Greenpeace, don't like large dams to be built because they say it's destroying the environment. In other words, it's flooding a valley, which is true, but it's not like you're turning the valley into a toxic waste dump. You're turning the valley into a lake. In other words, you're replacing a terrestrial environment with an aquatic one in which fish will be quite comfortable. And then you can go in your boat on the weekend and catch some of them or go swimming or water skiing uh, or 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 enjoy the view from the beach. Uh, Lakes are nice things. And the environmental movement acts as though it's the the death of the planet to the point where Greenpeace and their friends succeeded in getting the World Bank to pull its funding for the Three Gorges Dam. And in fact, they have stopped about 200 hydroelectric projects. You know what would be the salvation for the Congo where they're all slaughtering each other with machetes and having tribal warfare and they're poor? That country has all the resources in the world it needs. If they would put some hydro dams on the Congo and generate some electricity, they would be able to build a civilization there and maybe they would stop slaughtering each other out of, uh, uh, you know, out of desperation and poverty 
uh, and internecine warfare. So there's the hydro thing. And now there's lots of hydroelectric potential left in the world in Brazil, where you know James Cameron goes down to Brazil and paints his face all up and 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 hangs with the disaffected, uh, protesting against a new hydroelectric project in Brazil. How do they want these people to read at night? You know where? How do they expect them to get their electricity? Because the only alternatives are nuclear and fossil fuels. To if, if hydroelectric is what you're talking about, those are the three. And yet the environmental movement basically rejects all fossil fuels, all hydroelectric, and all nuclear, which in fact are about 99% of the entire world's energy supply, among the three of them. And so we, you know, we just have to be a little bit more creative than that. We can't just say ban basically everything. And it ends up that the only electricity technologies that the movement supports uh, and finds morally superior are wind and solar, which are both really expensive and don't work very well. And so, great, we're going to build our civilization based on wind and solar energy so that when the wind stops blowing, you have to send everybody home from the factory because there's no power to make the cars anymore or whatever it is you're building. And so this, this crazy dream world that uh, the, the movement and the promoters of these technologies who are all receiving vast amounts of subsidies, uh, the only place that solar and wind is viable is where there are government-mandated subsidies or government-mandated uh, requirements for a certain percentage, what you call renewable portfolio standard in the U.S. In Europe, they do it a different way with what's called a feed-in tariff, but they basically force the electrical utilities to build a certain amount of these so-called renewables, uh, which in fact are economically unsustainable. Why does the government force the wind and solar renewable options? Why are they tied to it? Why are they pressing for it? because it is good, morally superior, and green. And so this is where the value judgment is coming in, and this is where, of all the crazy things, the Environmental Protection Agency can become so politicized, even in its science on carbon dioxide. You know, there was a very strong internal report from a longtime employee of the EPA saying, just a minute, guys, we should reanalyze the science under this thing. And that was suppressed in the so-called open, transparent process that we have. It's in my book. The, the author of that study is named. It's, this is a true fact that his boss said, don't you talk about this anymore because this is the way it's going to go. And so the EPA's decision on carbon dioxide being basically a toxic pollutant, an air pollutant, uh, is a, a, an absolute disgrace uh, with regard to scientific truth. When CO2 is actually the most important food for life on Earth, that is a fact. It cannot be denied. And it is a fact that CO2 is a greenhouse gas in that along with a number of other compounds that are in the air, it increases the effectiveness of solar energy at warming our Earth's lower atmosphere, that is a fact, but it is not a fact that temperature and carbon dioxide have been in some kind of lockstep throughout the history of life on Earth. As a matter of fact, there are periods when they seem to be somewhat correlated, but there are other periods when CO2 was 
like five or ten times higher than it is today, and there was an ice age occurred. That was like 450 million years ago or so. But it happened. Uh, and, and, and therefore, at that period, that, that, despite the fact that CO2 levels were extremely high, it did not warm the earth. It, it actually went into an ice age. I think that information and that frame of reference is not registered in the public mind, which is very important that it isn't and very important that it should be. This is where we get confused. Yeah, it's denied. And that's what the hockey stick was all about. Even though the hockey stick only went back a thousand years, which is like nothing. It's like two seconds. Uh, even though it only went back that far, no one... No one in, in, the, in daily life thinks that a, that a thousand years is a short time. For, for most people, a thousand years is like, oh my God, a thousand years, that's like eternity. And so the hockey stick, starting a thousand years ago, purported to show that the climate was steady and cooler than it has been in the last 50 years and shows this giant uptick at the end, hence the hockey stick. Uh, basically... That whole exercise was in order to deny that there was a medieval warm period and that there was a little ice age. The medieval warm period peaked about a thousand years ago. Grapes were being grown in Scotland. The, the Vikings colonized Greenland and Newfoundland. Not many people in this world know that there was a Norse colony in northern Newfoundland a thousand years ago. The site is still there. It's a national park. The pits uh, where the houses were built are, are there. We know it was Norse because of, uh, you know, artifacts that were found there. Those people were frozen out when the medieval warming period ended and the Little Ice Age came on for 300 years or so. The, the River Thames last froze over in 1814 and had been freezing over on a fairly regular basis for a few hundred years prior to that. There's paintings of people skating on the Thames, for example. So we know that this is true. It's not just anecdotal. It's a fact. And yet it stopped around 1800 and the climate began to warm again. And in fact, today the world's climate is about one degree and maybe a half in that area warmer than it was during the Little Ice Age. But what people don't realize is that today's world is only a two or three degrees Celsius warmer than it was at the height of the last glaciation. When in fact, before the ice age came on, the world was much warmer than it is today. Four, five, six degrees, even 10 degrees Celsius warmer on average than it is today. There was no ice on the poles. The ice on Antarctica started building up about 25 million years ago. Whereas for a hundred million years before that, Antarctica was forested. And so were the Arctic islands of Canada forested up until even more recently. It wasn't really until 2.5 million years ago that the present ice age, and I say the present ice age, this is what people don't understand. We are still in the Pleistocene, the ice age. That's why there's so much ice on the poles and why the northern and southern hemisphere are so bloody cold in the winter is because the earth is still in an ice age. And being, being not in an ice age would mean that there would not be all this ice on the poles and that it would be re reasonable to live in northern Canada, which is which it is not at the present time. That's why Canadians are all huddled along the 49th parallel because it's the only place where it's halfways livable and it's only halfways livable. I, 
I, I, I say to audiences, and this is what one of my best laughs is, how come there's 300 million people in the United States and only 30 million people in Canada, which is actually larger geographically? And there's one word that explains that, cold. It is too cold in Canada. And then I say, sometimes I think that's why the Yanks let us have it, me being a Canadian. <laughs> and there's some sense to that, in fact, because the vast majority of Canada is basically inhospitable, and the only good thing about it is there's resources there, and that's why there's people living in Fort McMurray at the oil sands and why people are living up in the Northwest Territories at the big diamond mines. Uh, other than the Inuit and the Dene, and the, the few, very few people who managed about 30,000 years ago to figure out how to live in those harsh Arctic conditions uh, by utilizing marine mammals and having dogs to, to, to keep the polar bears away and to pull them around on sleds, they did manage to figure out how to live there. But they, like the penguins, are you know very few and far between. Uh, there's very few species and very few humans that can live in those terribly cold climates. Most of the people are in the warm places, like Sao Paulo, where there's, you know, between Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, there's 35 million people living within a 100-mile radius in uh, Brazil. That's where people like to be, is where it's warm. And, uh, you know, we have managed to colonize the colder climates because we have fire, clothing, and shelter. But otherwise, we are a tropical species, and that's another thing people don't understand. We are a tropical species, us humans. We came from the equator in Africa and spread out because we developed technology and the ability to survive in colder climates. But take off our clothes and take fire away and take shelter away, and we have to be in an equatorial climate even to survive through one day. So the issue with nuclear anything... My take on it is that there's a great many people that don't trust the stewards and the commission for nuclear energy to secure those plants and to secure the contents of them. Now, I know that in the book you explained nuclear waste very thoroughly and you explained that some of the nuclear waste is pebbles. It's not just liquid. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, but I do want to say legitimately that it seems as if what happened in Japan and what happened obviously in Chernobyl is all of our greatest fears. But one of the things you brought up in your book is that there has been a lot of nuclear testing that Russia's done, that China has done, and the United States has participated in that have hurt the environment badly. In fact, we're still living in it. And how much radiation was released into the air and into the environment from that. But I know that if there was a way or if the way was secured to guarantee the protection of these plants, really solidify that, I don't think there would be as much resistance. But I think there's good reason to have tremendous fear about it. I think it's rational to have prudence about it. I don't think it's off balance for people to want to call nuclear energy and the providers and the stewards of it to account for huge transparency and an ability to protect at all costs. And so I want you to explain to us why you say nuclear waste is fuel of the future, the distinction between fusion and fission. And one of the things you said is that a 100 years of a nuclear energy product 
equals 10,000 years of energy production. Go ahead and explain it to us. Well, I'll start with fusion versus fission. Uh, fission is what we have today. The, the nuclear plants that are operating around the world are all based on fission, which is splitting uranium uh, into two pieces and extracting the energy, the huge amount of energy that results from doing that. Fusion is a hypothetical future possibility where you basically combine two hydrogen atoms, so you fuse them together, and that makes a helium, and that also has a huge amount of energy associated with it. But so far, we have not been capable of reproducing fusion in a controlled way that would produce net energy. It is basically the same thing that is happening in the sun, that the sun is a giant fusion reactor, whereas fission is a separate thing altogether, but it's what we have learned to do, and it is what made it possible to build nuclear weapons as well as what makes it possible to build nuclear power plants. One of the, and, and, and I see, I, I do not think that the fear of nuclear energy is rationally based, and I'll explain why. Uh, let's look at the three accidents that have occurred, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and now Fukushima. Only one of those accidents caused loss of life from radiation, and that was Chernobyl. Now, Chernobyl is, a, is truly an exception in that the Soviet Union, during the Cold War, built a class of nuclear reactors that would never have been allowed in the West. It was still behind the Iron Curtain at the time. Western scientists and engineers did not have any influence over the Soviet Union's nuclear energy policy, and they basically took shortcuts and built reactors that not only had no containment structure on them, but had what's called a positive void coefficient, which meant it was possible for the nuclear reaction to run away. In other words, to go critical. And that is what happened at Chernobyl. Chernobyl was not a meltdown accident. It was a runaway nuclear explosion of the core of the reactor and blew the whole top off the thing and blew all the contents into the environment. Now, you mentioned nuclear testing. That is so true. 99% of all of the fission products of the radioactive man-made materials that are in our environment today came from the atmospheric nuclear testing, the cesium-137 and the strontium-90 in particular, which have 30-year half-lives and therefore take 100 years to completely more or less decay, whereas it's only been 60 years, so there's still about a quarter as much of the strontium and cesium as was emitted in those hundreds of atmospheric nuclear tests that took place. About 1% of the man-made radiation in our environment comes from Chernobyl, and Fukushima will be in the sort of one-tenth of a percent range, something like that. Uh, and thankfully at Fukushima, most of the radiation went into the sea, where it will go eventually to marine sediments that will be buried. Uh, Three Mile Island did not harm anyone. That was definitely proven in five long-term follow-up studies by universities and hospitals to the uh, satisfaction of all the leadership in Pennsylvania, there was no harm done to people by Three Mile Island. It was a big, expensive, mechanical failure. Uh, I, I, I compare it to going down the road in your car and your engine blows up. 
Well, probably because you forgot to check the oil, human error. That's what happened at Three Mile Island, too. It wasn't checking the oil, but it was they read the gauge wrong. So human error causes a big mechanical failure. Your engine blows up. You pull off to the side of the road. Your family is safe. Everything is fine, except it's going to be a big repair bill. That's what Three Mile Island was. Chernobyl, on the other hand, as I mentioned, and, and Three Mile Island was a loss of coolant uh, accident followed by a partial meltdown of the core of the reactor. Chernobyl was a runaway nuclear explosion, was a far more serious event, did cause death. The World Health Organization says 56 deaths can be attributed to the Chernobyl accident. Most of those occurred fighting the fire uh, that, that raged for a week. Doesn't this radiation, though, stay in the environment for years? I mean, they're not keeping tabs for years on people getting cancers or anything. Oh, they most certainly are. They have, they have followed all of the Chernobyl uh, exposed. They were all forcibly removed and put where they could easily be monitored into giant tenement blocks around the outskirts of Kiev in the Ukraine. What about hotspots, Patrick? Radioactive hotspots in Europe from Chernobyl. There are natural radioactive hotspots. For example, in Thailand, there's a place where all the people living there get over 100 times as much radiation from natural hot springs in the background radiation coming out of the earth than we do, for example, in the average place. Well, all of the people in Denver, Colorado, get a considerable amount more because they live in a mile high because they're closer to the sun. There's less atmosphere to block the radiation from the sun there. So that, that we're all exposed to radiation every day. Uh, and, and if, you know, in my book, I explain about how there's a number of theories about radiation. But let's come to Fukushima now, which has released somewhere around 10% as much radiation as Chernobyl did. Most of it, though, to the sea, which is good because it didn't get in the air. That It went into the ocean where it will settle eventually in sediments and will not be of long-term harm. Whereas on the land, the radiation does remain for a considerable period of time. But the World Health Organization, now I, I go by them. I, I, I follow a lot of stuff that WHO does. They are not politicized to the extent that some other UN agencies are. They are very thorough. They base their stuff on actual measurements and science and follow-up studies and that sort of thing. I don't thing. know, not when it comes to vaccinations, but maybe in what you're talking about. But that's a whole other subject for a whole other time. But anyway, the bottom line is you like them and you trust them and you feel comfortable with what they're reporting. Do I trust them? But following the Chernobyl accident, a seven-agency Chernobyl forum was established of seven UN agencies plus the governments of Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia. They are all part of this ongoing committee that has studied the after effects of Chernobyl. The World Health Organization states very clearly that in retrospect, they're not blaming anybody, in retrospect, the worst effect of Chernobyl was the forced relocation of 300,000 plus people into these tenement blocks from their rural homes where the suicide, divorce, mental illness, cruelty, alcoholism, you name it, the social conditions deteriorated tremendously as a result of basically putting them into projects. And we've seen that happen in the United States, in, in New York City, in projects. And with Katrina, sure. It happened to these people. And they would have been better off if they had been left where they were because the background radiation only went up a couple of times above normal. There would not have been any serious impact 
And in fact, there is no discernible health effect on those 300,000 people in terms of their, their rate of cancer versus the general population's rate of cancer. The, the, the health authorities have stated that very clearly. There is, and you know, you hear Greenpeace saying 90,000 people died and all the children are being formed with, born with mutations. These are lies. It's not true. There, there is no discernible health effect. Now, come to Fukushima and listen to, a, and you can go on the web and see it. National Public Radio did a, a little while back an interview with the Radiation Effects Research Foundation in Hiroshima. Now, the Radiation Effects Research Foundation has followed the health histories of 100,000 survivors of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombs, along with 20,000 people who, whose domiciles were in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but who were not home on the day, not in, in town, on the day the bombs were dropped. And those 20,000 people have been used as a control. Now, despite the fact that these 100,000 people, many of them were exposed to extremely high levels of radiation because they were right there and the bomb went off right over their head, the, the increase in cancer in that population is hardly statistically valid. It is so low. It is like 1% of them. And so even though they were exposed to huge amounts of radiation, so when the, the Radiation Effects Research Foundation was asked by NPR, why aren't you planning to do a large-scale follow-up study on the health effects of Fukushima? They said it would be pointless because the, the, the doses of radiation, like those people were evacuated before the radiation was released, unlike Chernobyl where people were in the radiation for a long time before they were relocated. And the, the Soviet Union didn't even acknowledge the fact that there'd been an accident for two days. And then it took a week to put the fire out. And meanwhile, these people were all in the plume of radiation going downwind. The people in Fukushima were removed. The workers at Fukushima are all wearing dosimeters and are restricted to 250 millirems, and then they're out, and they have to be replaced by someone else. 250 millirems is not going to harm them. The general public hasn't received anything like that kind of dose of radiation. They have not received enough radiation to be in the slightest harmful. So no one has died of radiation at Fukushima. Meanwhile, 28,000 people have died in a tsunami, yet the, the so-called nuclear disaster has got 100 times as much print and airtime as the tsunami did. And, you know, 26,000 people died in a hydroelectric accident in China in 1975. And because it cut off all the supply lines, 100,000 people died of starvation after the accident because nobody could get food to them. And, you know, the 125,000 people die in one hydroelectric accident. Nobody dies at Fukushima. Two million people die from breathing fossil fuel fumes every year Again, according to the World Health Organization's estimates, 2 million people a year, 1,000,000.3 people die in vehicle accidents every year, cars mostly, also motorcycles and bicycles, but things that move and kill you. So one, over 1 million people die every year in car accidents and the like, mostly innocent pedestrians, passengers, and drivers who were not at fault. Even sometimes there's no one at fault in a, in a vehicle accident. And yet, if you look at the whole nuclear industry's history from day one, 56 people have died all in one accident at Chernobyl. That's about one per year over the 56-year period of nuclear technology. One person dead per year from nuclear. Thousands from hydroelectric, thousands and millions from fossil fuels. 
millions from automobiles, and one from nuclear. So where is the logic in that in terms of risk analysis? Just talking about pure risk analysis, ask a, the average person, okay, you have a choice. You can either go into a nuclear reactor today, or you can get in a car and go and drive out on the freeway all day. Which would you rather do? I'm going in the nuclear reactor because I have a million times more chance of dying on the road than I do inside a nuclear reactor, even inside it. And Patrick, this brings us to one of the things that really gets your goat having to do with the precautionary principle. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. Talk about that because this is really where the rubber meets the road. It seems like part of the fear around nuclear is no information, just no knowledge about it. People are uneducated about it. A lot of people are scared of what they don't understand. And a lot of people don't understand what you're explaining and what you have written about. So that's one. But the other one is this precautionary principle that you talk about that seems to be a theme throughout the book. Explain it and explain to us why you take issue with it. Well, the the first thing is the precautionary principle is not actually a principle. A principle is something you do without failure. In other words, the precautionary principle says if there is a risk that something could go wrong with doing a certain thing or employing a certain technology, then you shouldn't do it because there's you don't want to take that risk. And so basically, if you applied the precautionary principle as a principle, you would not get out of bed in the morning because you're safer in the bed than you are getting up and, and, and risking falling and breaking your hip or risking getting into a car and being in an accident or just, you know, subjecting yourself to the daily risk of life. Uh, that would be a principle. So therefore, it's not a principle. And so I, and actually the United Nations in most of its documentation around this subject has adopted the term precautionary approach, which is a very reasonable term, unlike precautionary principle, which is a useless term basically, because it, it's, it's kind of a zero tolerance term and it doesn't make any sense because there's no, you know, if you interpret it strictly, again, you wouldn't get out of bed, you wouldn't do anything that had any risk. And there is no such thing as a risk-free world or a risk-free life. The only time we are not at risk is when we're dead. And then it doesn't matter. But hasn't the UN adopted a precautionary approach with respect to the UN panel on climate change? I mean, isn't that a lot of where they're coming from about it? Yes, it is. But but the, the good thing is they use the term approach. A precautionary approach is when you come to the curb and you want to cross the street, you look both ways to make sure there's not a risk of being run over and killed. That is the precautionary approach. But if you look both ways and you cannot see any present danger, then you will go across the street because it furthers you to do so because there's an opportunity on the other side or something you want on the other side. So you go there and halfway across the street, a meteor comes out of the sky or a bolt of lightning and kills you in the middle of the street. That was the risk you took. And you cannot eliminate that. It's impossible to have zero risk. Not to get off the explanation that you're giving right now, but do you think that the UN has really looked both ways? No, I don't. I think the IPCC is entirely politicized. Uh, it, is, uh, it is what I call a powerful convergence of interests there. Uh, you know, the, the, the IPCC 
is basically a union between the World Meteorological Organization, weathermen, and the United Nations Environment Program, environmentalists. It does not include the vast array of sciences that are also important with regard to climate change, such as astrophysics and geology and paleontology and solar sciences and Earth's, all the other Earth sciences. And when they say there is an overwhelming consensus among climate scientists, they mean among us in our club. They have their own club. It's called the IPCC. And even though there are dissenters within the IPCC, they are suppressed. They are not allowed through into the summary for policymakers document, for example. They are actually suppressed. And there's evidence of that, lots of it. And, you know, there's Climate Gate, which they whitewashed as well as they could. Uh, but when you get right down to the bottom of it, it was, there was clear evidence that the so-called climate scientists were withholding information uh, in, in a way that was not is not acceptable from a science point of view. They were manipulating information and hiding the decline and such. And they were they were also conspiring to destroy the reputation of their uh, opposite people who didn't agree, of the, the skeptics. So no doubt about all of that. Um, it is a highly politicized environment. And they've had to admit to so many errors, and yet it just steamrolls on. Because, again, there is this powerful convergence of interests. Environmentalists who want to get your money to save the world, politicians who want your vote because they are saving your, your children and their future world, uh, businesses that want to look green and get government grants uh, for doing green things, uh, scientists and universities who want to get huge grants to do their work. You have to have climate change in your grant application these days if you want to get ahead. And media, last but not least, media that wants to create conflict, sensation, and fear uh, in order to perpetuate stories that attract advertising revenue. And so all of those, and that's, I've, I've named most of society there, all of those elements have a common interest in promoting the fear of climate change. There was a great article in Green Biz, uh, it's a few years ago now, uh, which is an, an internet-based green business-oriented website. The, the point of this essay was that political elites sort of create boogeymen uh, to instill fear into the public in order to control them. And to make a long story short, this article postulated that in today's politics, the uh, theory on the right is global terrorism to instill fear in people, and on the left is climate change to instill fear in people about their future and make them uh, uneasy and therefore malleable uh, in terms of controlling their behavior and their thoughts. And Understood. Making, making them feel guilty. Uh, so guilt and fear are, are two of the prime motivators of human behavior, and climate change is perfect. First, uh, you're fearful that the world is going to fry in hell, uh, you will perish in flames, uh, and secondly, you're, you're guilty because you're the cause. Also, the simulations that Al Gore did in his movie was so scary, it's so scary, and I never examined it because I believed it when I saw it. I mean, it's very hard to imagine the huge distortion that's taking place to do a movie like that. 
we want to look at leaders, whether they're political or not, as being truthful with us. But it wasn't until I really got into examining these simulations and how these assertions are being made, and then you really understand why it's made up. Yeah, well, Al Gore shows a 20-foot rise in sea level in his uh, presentation. Exactly. And shows what Florida would look like after that. And New York. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it, the, the sea hasn't risen 20 feet in the last 10,000 years. Well, actually, it's risen. See, that, that's, that, that's where he uh, distorts. And the fact of the matter is, the sea has risen 400 feet in the last 10,000 years. And it wasn't because of us. It was because the ice melted and the glaciation ended. The last one started ending around 15,000 years ago. And between about 10,000 years ago and 5,000 years ago was the great melting and the great rise in sea level. And if you look, it's available. you can go to Wikipedia and sea level rise and see the graph that goes back about 20,000 years that shows this huge increase in sea level that occurred when the big, low elevation glaciers in the temperate climates like Canada melted and caused the sea to rise. And then since about 5,000 years ago, the sea level rise has been very slow because most of the glaciers that were meltable melted then. And the temperature of the Earth would have to go quite a bit higher than it is today for the Greenland ice sheet and the Antarctic ice sheet, which is where the main ice is, is remaining on this Earth. In order for those to melt, it would have to get a lot warmer than it is now. Uh, maybe it will get warmer. Uh, we don't know that. Uh, maybe it won't. Uh, maybe we will start easing back into an ice age again one of these times. We don't know. But one of the most sort of heretical thoughts that I have, uh, and that actually J James Lovelock, the father of the Gaia hypothesis and, and a person who supports nuclear energy, and largely because he has said he is afraid of climate change uh, and that the global heating uh, will in his earlier forecasts, will basically destroy human civilization in this century. Uh, but he has come around a little bit, because I, I have a, you may have noticed that towards the end of the book, I have a little section in my climate change chapter titled The Enigmatic Dr. Lovelock. Yes. Because on one hand, he warns of impending doom and catastrophe with very uh, colorful language. He says that we will be reduced to a few hundred million huddled around the Arctic Sea, ruled by brutal warlords. That, that to me, was one of the best apocalyptic uh, visions I've heard for a long time. But uh, he also recently said, uh, in a speech he gave at the London Science Museum, uh, of which he is a mentor, uh, he gave a speech in which he mused that perhaps the reason humans are releasing all this carbon dioxide into the atmosphere is that we are being used by Gaia, the great mother Earth, to jumpstart us out of this ice age, to fend off another glaciation. In other words, to make the world warmer on purpose because a warmer world is better for life. And I go with that idea before I go with the idea that we are some kind of rogue species on Earth. And, you know, if you believe at all in Gaia, the idea that all of life is evolving together in some kind of harmony with a lot of feedback mechanisms which are controlling the chemistry of the atmosphere, which is making it more hospitable for life on Earth, which is basically what Gaia is about, 
then why would we be a rogue species? Why would there be such a thing? It goes back too much to me to original sin and the idea that we are evil and nature is good, which I don't buy because, I, well, I just don't. I will not never accept that ridiculous idea because it's way too uh, just a distortion of Judeo-Christianity and all of the other religious mysticisms that there are around about, you know, good and evil I agree with. But I, I also think that human beings are good as well as evil, and mostly they are actually good. 99% of, 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 of people is goodness. And uh, only there's this nasty little evil bit uh, that comes in the form of genocide and mass extermination of each other. But at war, in other words. But it seems that that is an unfortunate natural fact of existence, is that we war with each other because we fight over the resources that allow us to survive, and uh, I hate it. But nevertheless, we are not a rogue species in the sense of original sin. Or, and if you want to believe that, fine. But it sure isn't my way of looking at the world. We are part of Gaia, we are part of nature, we are part of creation, we are part of evolution, and we have evolved along with all of the other beautiful species on this earth, and we are one of the beautiful species. I will never be convinced otherwise on that point. I agree with you. I wanted to say something to you about people's concerns, and I know you address part of this in your book. The population right now, as of 2010, was somewhere around 6.8 billion, and it's estimated that population will grow to 9.5 billion in 2050. Why did you mention population in the book? Well, I mentioned population in the book because it is a very important subject with regard to sustainability of our civilization and the sustainability of the Earth's environment in terms of supporting uh, the demands that we make on it for food, energy, and material resources. Uh, it is an important subject. It's a hard one to talk about because, as I, as I say, you don't get very far into the subject until people start punching below the belt. Uh, all kinds of issues around uh, feminism, uh, race, sexism. Really? About population? Well, sure. It has to do with breeding and the abortion issue comes into it always. Got you. Uh, it, it's a hugely emotional... Uh, it's emotionally loaded. Well, let's yeah. talk about it in the context of the concerns of sustainability, because I think that that's also one of the concerns that people assume that with population growth, that we won't be able to sustain ourselves, quote, the way we're going. But what is the way that we're going? And what is this way that you see sustainability being able to, it seems like you had a positive stance with regard to if we took certain directions with energy and production of energy that we could accommodate the growth instead of smashed by the growth. Is that the essence of what you said? Not only are, are we going to be able to accommodate the projected growth in human population, but we are already doing so and have proven that we can do it. The, 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 the wealth of the world is increasing on a per capita basis, despite the fact that the population itself is increasing. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, which was a basket case up until a few years ago, is now starting to thrive because it is adopting modern technology and society the world has become globalized, and everybody is going to share in technology. But as I point out clearly in the book, 
the way in which population can be brought under control, in other words, stop growing, which is important that it happen at some point, because we can't just keep growing infinitely. And this is a philosophical argument, because there are, there are those particularly of a religious orientation who think we are meant to breed and multiply forever, and, and, you know, and that that is our main purpose in life, is to have eight children each or something. And I do not agree with that. But I also do not agree with people like, uh, you know, Paul Watson, for example, who I admire for tackling the Japanese whalers in Antarctica, but he should probably stick to that, uh, because he says that our population should be reduced to one-fifth of what it is today, or even one-sixth of what it is today. So he's basically harmonized with Agenda 21 to reduce the population. That would be better. Exactly. His, his conclusion is that humans are a negative factor on the planet uh, and that nature would be better off without us, but at least we should get rid of four-fifths of us somehow. And wow, that's like eugenics almost. It doesn't actually explain how this is going to be brought about, so why have such a stupid opinion if you don't have a practical way in which to achieve it? Now, I think Aside from the fact that it's pretty scary. <laughs> it, it's, a nasty, it's a nasty thing to say. I'm glad he isn't the dictator of the world. Exactly. And, uh, but on the other hand, uh, it's very simple. If you look around the world and see the situation, you will see that the population has indeed stopped growing in the industrialized countries where agriculture has been mechanized. That is the key, mechanization of agriculture, bringing food production into the modern era. And that means not having 80% of your population engaged in stoop labor their whole lives, barefoot and pregnant and women, uneducated, on farms with big families because they're producing labor. And the more kids you have, the more food you can grow and the more labor you have to do it. And that is what happens in subsistence agricultural economies, whereas still today in China and India, well over 50% of the individuals are engaged entirely in food production. This means that they cannot do other things such as make things and provide services. So one of the problems with a, a, a country that is still in subsistence agriculture is they can't make the leap into a modern society because there's nobody, they don't have the people to do it. Because in, in, in our society, less than 5% of the people are employed in, in growing food, and the other 95% can therefore lead productive lives in providing, making goods and, and providing other, other services and that is what is necessary for a modern society to exist. And so, therefore, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, with support of Warren Buffett, for example, are very clearly focused on this. They understand it. Uh, and Bill Gates doesn't care whether Greenpeace doesn't like genetic modification or nuclear energy. He gets it. And he sees that the mechanization of agriculture and bringing modern agriculture to Africa is one of the keys to improving their standard of living. They need electricity and they need to mechanize their agriculture, and they need to put some hydro dams on the Congo, uh, and, and, and they need to uh, come you know, into this century. And therefore, population growth will end. Because when you mechanize agriculture, children are no longer an asset for labor. They become, in fact, a liability or a cost center, and therefore, people automatically have smaller families. Besides, most of the people move into urban environments where the women get educated and become in the workforce and become empowered politically and automatically take control of their own reproductive destinies and have 
smaller families, and even the women living on the mechanized farms now are in a modern society, and there's going to be a town center somewhere where there's a mall they can go to and go to movies and, and uh, see plays, and they have satellite TV, so they're plugged into the world, and they get educated, and they're not barefoot and pregnant their whole lives and uneducated like they are in subsistence economies. It's as simple as that. And yet, the environmental movement, of course, has this leftish, romantic vision of everybody living in little huts with their little vegetable patch that they dutifully hoe the weeds every morning or whatever, you know. It's a complete fantasy. It's, it's a recipe for a 30-year average lifespan, like it was before we got medicine and mechanization and technology. But that, that's their fantasy, is this sort of back-to-the-land uh, that cities are actually evil when in fact cities are actually the answer because it gets the people off the land and you can have more national parks and if you use mechanized agriculture and modern agricultural techniques you grow five times as much food per area of land and therefore you don't need as much land to grow the food for more people and you can leave some of nature alone and this all comes down in the end to how much of the earth's natural environment are we going to second for making a factory for growing food and producing energy and fiber for clothing and wood for building how much of the earth's land surface and sea are we going to take over and how much of are we going to let be like nature and so land use planning on a global scale and and marine use planning it's one place where i have a lot of time for the environmental movements thrust on marine issues is the idea of marine protected areas. Now, it's a big argument within the fishing and marine community, but I personally believe that in the same way that it's a good idea to, say, take 10, 20% of the land and make it into national parks, wilderness areas, reserves, whatever you want to call them, where you don't have commercial activity on a large scale, I think that's a good idea in the ocean as well, to have certain reefs set aside for breeding etc. And there's, a, there's so much, the marine side of things in terms of sustainability, there's so much we can do in the future with aquaculture and artificial reefs and stuff like this. Uh, it's, it's a huge potential and not being tapped because again, it's this hands-off sort of approach by one side or this exploitation approach by the other side. And, we, and, we, and as I try to explain in my book, we have to find the medium sustainability where we balance the environmental, social, and economic factors. But the mechanization of agriculture is the way we stop population growth. Well understood. I have an area that has to do with marine life and the oceans that very much disturbs me. And that is that I found out last year that the Navy has the right to destroy through testing, military tests in the ocean of 5 million animals. They have the right to do this over the next five years. It's already contracted and there's no stopping it. So very much similar to the weapons testing of China and Russia and the United States, the tests that sent all the radioactive energy into the environment. We also have a Navy that is doing war experiments in the oceans this has to affect reefs and has to affect marine life and has to affect what's going on in the oceans as well. That seems out of our hands to be able to do anything about, but it's very disturbing. It's something that goes on. It's something that nobody can stop. What do you think about that? Well, are, are you talking about acoustic? Uh, no, 
I'm talking about literally war experiments. I will send you the document. I'd very much like to see that, but as, as, as you know, the military often has carte blanche uh, because it's national security. Of course. And, and it's top secret and all of that. And, and, and one of the great achievements of society was to end atmospheric nuclear testing. And we came in, Greenpeace came in after the fact on that, except for France was still doing it. And, you know, Russia and, and, and the United States and Britain had stopped atmospheric nuclear testing in the 60s with the limited test ban treaty, but France and China, uh, and then India and Pakistan, uh, continued to employ atmosphere. Well, I don't know if Pakistan did have an atmosphere, whether that was underground or not, but I do know, I do know for a fact that China and France continued to conduct atmospheric nuclear tests long after the United States, Russia, and Britain stopped. And we, what our second campaign in Greenpeace was to take on the French atmospheric nuclear tests in French Polynesia at the Maroa Atoll, which we succeeded in driving them underground uh, after just two years of campaigning. Uh, so that was, you know, that was a great success on Greenpeace's part, and they've, they've never really got the credit that they, that they were due for our early years of work. We stopped the U.S. hydrogen bomb, underground hydrogen bomb tests in Alaska, we stopped the French atmospheric nuclear tests in the South Pacific, and then we saved the whales. So, you know, it, 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 was, a, it was incredible what was accomplished in those few years. There's still war experiments going on, only it may not be in the air and on the land, but it's in the sea. We can't stop the Navy. They run a lot of things, more things than people think they do, but it's still there. It's still in the mix. So it's just a very, very sad thing. I would like to invite you back to talk with us about cause and correlation. I want to talk more about GMO foods with you, fish farming. I want to talk about forestry and deforestation and confusion around there. And of course, I want to talk about our beloved dolphins, whales, and seals and what's going on, and what you've done, and what you're proposing. And I really want to thank you for joining us today in part one. Patrick Moore, the author of Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, The Making of a Sensible Environmentalist, and Trees Are the Answer. Thank you for being on the show today, Patrick. Thanks very much, Kim. And next time we'll talk a little more about why nuclear is the future of energy for the world. Thank you so much.